Okay, so today's training is on helping clients transition to and sustain housing. And you are uh, being provided this training by the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Um, uh, let's see, Stephanie, do you wanna introduce yourself real quick and then I'll keep going with uh, the rest of the intro? Absolutely. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Moon. I'm an occupational therapist by training, um, but I am currently with the um, UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership as a lead implementation specialist. Um, I Most of my practice has been with the homeless population um, in Skid Row and in Compton, so spas four and, uh, sorry, my cat, and spa six. Um, most of my time was in primary care. Um, I did a little bit of time with outpatient substance use. And then my, my, my last clinical stop mostly is uh, with medical respite. Um, and those were the primary settings in which I work with our clients, but it was really wherever they were because, right, we do whatever it takes. Um, and so uh, my background, again, is an occupational therapist, and I did my doctorate work in integrated behavioral health. So throughout the uh, presentation, you might see hints of that perspective coming through, as well as my love for integrating physical health and mental health. So my biases will come through. I will put that caveat. Um, I love talking about roles, routines, engagement, um, function, and, and meaningful activities. Um, so with that, I'll turn it back to you, Elizabeth. Thanks. Um, yep, I'm Elizabeth Mackey. I've been with PMHE for a uh, year and some change. At this point, I'm also a lead implementation specialist. I've usually focused more around FSP. Um, our group trains uh, and supports both home and FSP teams. I believe, Stephanie, you're going to be working a bit more on the home side. Uh, and I am a social worker. I am super excited to be doing a training with Stephanie as an OT and a new member of our team uh, today because I've learned just in putting this training together with her in the past week or so that she has such a fresh perspective, and I've not gotten to work with OTs in my former work contexts, um, which are, I. let's see, we're talking about housing. So I last um, worked in direct service prior to this in New York City. I lived there for about eight years. Um, I started off in doing some sort of harm reduction oriented homeless outreach work, moved into working in supportive housing contexts, managed a scatter site transitional housing program, and then moved into managing um, sort of a mobile care coordination teams, managing folks with uh, chronic and complex health issues and mental health issues. Prior to that, I worked in trauma treatment actually in, in Seattle. If you're here, you probably know who we are by now, but here's a little bit of information. Um, we are the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Uh, right now we provide training. We do a lot of training. So that's sort of the, the best way we can be utilized in this time and in a remote context. Again, we, we focus on FSP and home teams. Um, you can see our email address at the bottom there and our website where you can access our upcoming training calendar. And just before we get started, I think, you know, this is a training on, on housing and homelessness and, you know, it might not have a huge amount of obvious relevance to what's going on right now, but I think you still need to just uh, pause and acknowledge um, the current events and folks who are on this training or maybe no people who are not in this training are perhaps having a hard time. It's a difficult time. It's challenging. I think there are a lot of emotions, varied emotions going around. I want to acknowledge um, 
the lives lost and communities that have been, been impacted by that and by police brutality and by other forms of systemic racism and how that can really echo. It can echo with pain and grief and loss and frustration across communities. And some of you may be affected by that. And I just want to uh, offer some some words, some thoughts of support, um, some space as we can provide it and at least acknowledgement. Um, and also say thank you because doing work around helping people find housing and stability and finding their own version of recovery is hard work and it's most certainly anti-oppression work. These same, these populations, I mean, they, they, they are often mistreated as well in, in the same ways that we're seeing right now. So it's all interconnected and the work you're doing is amazing and you've been doing it through a pandemic to boot. So bravo to you and thank you. Alrighty, so learning objectives. These aren't too, uh, too hard and fast for today, but uh, we're gonna explore considerations for supporting previously unhoused and unstably housed individuals in transitioning into and sustaining housing. We hope you're gonna be able to describe a framework for bridging transition from homeless to house. We hope you'll be able to explain philosophical approaches that support housing transition. Uh, we hope you're gonna be able to identify factors associated with premature exits from supportive housing. Uh, articulate client identified needs during housing transition and utilize considerations offered as a starting point for intervention design. And here is a quick agenda. Uh, we're going to frame the challenge. I think, you know, just very, very basically, you all know the challenge. You're, you're living and breathing it and working it. Um, philosophies to support adaptation and integration. We'll explain what those are in just a moment. Needs and best practices, tips and tricks, and then we'll discuss as we have time. Okay, great. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I'm going to get us started again, just with kind of taking a look at what the challenge is and what that, that big picture is, right? And um, again, I might be preaching to the choir, but this is just, let's take a step back. Um, we, we exist within a larger context, right? And um, ending the homelessness cycle has a ton of challenges. Um, and it doesn't matter where they are, maybe in that cycle. Um, and a lot of these contextual obstacles or challenges are outside of our control, which can make it extra frustrating for us, but as well as um, for our clients. So some examples might right, be the politics, some funding issues, the economics of what, what's going on, especially now, um, the LA housing market, and even some cultural pieces, right? So that might look like um, the stigma or the marginalization that these um, clients of ours experience, um, NIMBYism, right? Um, we might pass laws and propositions and measures that provide us with funding and we're willing to do that, but maybe we're not willing to have that be down the street from where we live. Um, so definitely um, that element is very real. Um, we definitely also have insufficient number of affording housing nets, um, even though they, we do have them, right? Um, our clients are still sometimes spending upward of 40% of their income on basic housing costs and bills. Um, and so that also puts them in a situation where, you know, one, one mistake here and there could have them be in a precarious financial situation. And of course, also how the funding comes down. Sometimes there's just not enough funding or sometimes the funding's been cut up into different silos and, and there's things that we have to consider about whether or not that's in our scope, whether or not we have um, the time to engage in it because we have productivity or documentation requirements. Um, so all of that kind of right, tumbles down through this funnel and um, sometimes right that means um, even though we've housed maybe more people than ever, there's a net increase. In 
in the LA area of homelessness um, and that we're really trying our, our best to provide the necessary service supports but that we're, we're hitting different barriers and obstacles as we go along. Another piece to this that makes it challenging too is that chronic homelessness um, complicates the rehousing efforts, right? So the evidence talks again, and, and we're just breezing through this a little bit because we all have seen this um, in our work, um, is that the longer you are um, spending time on the streets, that oftentimes will correlate with some of the disparities that you experience socially and health-wise. Um, and the longer that goes on, then that means, right, you have a higher likelihood of having multimorbidities, be it physically, with substance use, mental health, um, and that makes this transition a little bit more complicated than, than it already is. This one, I, I, I love this study, and, and I, there, I promise there aren't a lot of bars and charts for the rest of that presentation. Um, but the study is interesting because, you know, it really points out the fact that individuals can experience increased difficulties during the move-in transition, right? A lot of times we're like, yes, I got my client housing. He's going to get in there, housing first. Once he's in there, so much of this is going to resolve. Um, now, what this chart shows, right, is um, in the dark gray, that's experiencing difficulty. So individuals who maybe moved in and they are actually feeling a little bit worse off than baseline before they moved in. And then the light gray chart is folks who are maybe um, showing improvements in some other symptoms, right? That's kind of the expected trajectory. So what we see here is, yeah, sure, the majority of our clients maybe have this positive trajectory in their um, community integration, their mental health symptomology, et cetera, et cetera. But we actually have a, a good amount of folks who struggle. Um, and this data is for that first six months in which they move in. Um, and some of these things that, you know, exacerbate or um, factors that make it a little harder for individuals is, say, something like those with um, psychosis. That's one diagnosis where they may have a, a, a correlation with doing a little bit more poorly or having some difficulty adjusting upon moving. Um, another factor is um, time to being housed, right? So if someone is waiting a little longer than six months to be housed, which a lot of our guys do because of the housing market here, um, they tend to also have some of these more negative um, impacts and challenges upon moving for the first six months. Um, now, the good news is there are some supportive factors that we can um, think about now, but we'll talk about throughout the presentation um, and one is um, they found that um, if the clients were receiving support from ACT teams or kind of our version right of FSP teams that they tend to have um, stronger outcomes especially in the community functioning area um, and then the other piece is they also found um, that positive alliances with uh, staff members who support them, be it case managers, um, property managers, therapists, that also really helped with some of these measures. Um, so this slide is just to kind of just begin to warm us up to the idea that just because somebody gets housed or placed in a unit doesn't mean automatically um, everything is being taken care of. And this um, is just a, a quick quote to kind of end this beginning section, um, really thinking about, right, failure to address issues that are important from a client's perspective um, can result in recidivism born of maladaptive lifestyles and the formation of poor public policy or public health and housing policy. Um, and so, of course, as folks kind of cycle in and out of housing units, that, that adversely affects that individual, but it also um, can exhaust societal resources. So um, that might be you and, and the frustration that you're experiencing, but also just um, the entire system. So hopefully today as we talk about some things to consider, 
um, you know, especially the client's perspective, we can um, slow the roll on the cycle a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Elizabeth to talk about a, a framework that we'll be using. Right. So this beautiful graphic here, we're actually not going to go into very much. <laughs> um, but I want to highlight that this is from a, uh, a framework and a document that Stephanie had shared with me that's from the OT perspective. Uh, it's called Bridging the Transition from Homeless to House, and this is the Bridging the Transition uh, framework. So these outer layers out here, we are going to talk actually about sort of the outside layer. We're going to talk, in, I'm in, I am in just about one minute, about some of the approaches some of the guiding principles that inform um, an understanding, a framework for uh, transitions from homelessness. Um, and these are things that we, we, in the work that we do, training FSP and home, these are our, actually our primary areas, the foundational components that we train on uh, regardless because they, they really are, for any of this work, for working with people who are unstably housed or homeless, or uh, folks who have chaotic lives who might be experiencing mental illness, these are the core pieces. We're gonna uh, get into those in just a second. But if you move towards, let's go towards the uh, inner circle, this uh, washing machine of sorts, uh, we've got survival, adaptation, integration, and precarity, and that's what I'll talk about in just a second. Uh, we've also got level of intervention there, and we're really gonna just talk about kind of the individual level of intervention, um, a larger, a much longer training would include community and population. Um, but I encourage, if you're interested, check out our references at the end of this uh, PowerPoint, and it is cited. And it was a really helpful, very pragmatic guide for me to read from a slightly different perspective for those of you who haven't been familiar or aren't OTs. So diving into these sort of four phases, uh, four pieces of this framework, um, these kind of could move in order. They, they, I guess, would tend to move in order. Um, survival is the first, and it describes someone who is homeless or unstably housed. And with each of these, this framework goes into what the needs might be and what the interventions are as well. Right here, I'm just talking about what are sort of the things that you would want to look at? What, what are the, the key areas? What are the key issues that would come up? Um, so for survival, uh, accessing services is really critical. It's a, a huge challenge. Um, managing a balance of survival activities and meaningful activity. Stephanie's going to talk a good bit more about what that what that looks like and the role of uh, boredom when people don't have survival activities in quite the same way once they're in housing and what that means for them and also processes to find meaningful activity. Coping with boredom, stress, and self-judgment also. Um, adaptation, this is when folks have just recently left homelessness. So they're initially in housing, maybe for the first time, maybe not for the first time. Um, challenges here, support needed here might be around managing and budgeting for reduced money. Uh, we'll talk about financial challenges and uh, strategies a bit later. Um, of course, fewer survival tasks to keep occupied. Learning. ADLs or IADLs for the first time potentially or for the first time in a very long time and in a new context independently. Uh, feeling disconnected from the new environment, certainly disconnected from their former environment wherever that may have been, which has impacts to uh, senses of safety and social engagement. Adjusting to new interpersonal relationships, whether you're in a congregate housing site or maybe having roommates or just having new neighbors, this is an issue. Um, having new workers potentially, a landlord, 
uh, myriad of new interpersonal relationships, increased ability to assess and address physical health issues. People, once they're housed, have a better chance of being able to follow through on treatments and medications and a number of things. They can get to and from appointments uh, in a more uh, predictable way. And so when that happens, people are realizing they might have some conditions that weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily aware of before and were not being treated, which can come with uh, positives and also stresses. Um, integration. This is continued adjustment after initial transition. So that could be anywhere from three months to 24 months to perhaps longer. You know, everyone is different, of course. Um, and thinking of support uh, needs are going to be around the importance of routine, maintaining motivation. So maintaining motivation once in a routine, which I think I can say for one is a challenge. Um, I think it might be for many. Uh, exploring further meaningful activity. So getting going deeper, finding out what else there is for you. Can you can uh, can the skills you've uh, developed early in adaptation uh, turn into something else, a hobby or employment? Um, potential rebuilding of family or other relationships we see here and continued challenge of limited resources because we know that is an ongoing issue. Um, precarity is not a guaranteed state. This is not a guaranteed thing. Uh, we hope it doesn't happen, but we are doing this training because it does happen. Um, this training is very much a, not about obtaining housing. We cannot tell you how to obtain housing. Uh, we know it is a challenge and we know that you would love to hear uh, the answers on that one but we want to talk about how to sustain housing how to maintain housing uh, and how to support people through doing that and then how to prevent them losing it and if they do lose it kind of what to look out for so if someone is in the precarity sort of phase they are needing support around the intense stress intense stress of potential housing loss um, that can be extremely traumatic for folks um, and they can react in a number of ways, even if it's something that they're really choosing. Um, problem solving and prevention for impending housing loss, of course, and uh, planning for after loss of housing. So if someone moves from their housing uh, by choice or not by choice, what's going to happen to their stuff? What happens with their um, treatment? What happens with their medications? Making uh, concrete plans for that. So this is a we're going to reference back to some of these bits, um, to these sort of phases, stages, periods, as we go through the training. Um, recommend again checking out that framework and reading the document. It's quite helpful for me. And yeah, we can move on to talking about approaches. Alrighty, so we're going to talk about four approaches that uh, nice diagram before had five on there. And I'm just sort of blending intersectionality into and social justice into these four. Um, so we're going to talk about recovery oriented care, trauma informed care, harm reduction and housing first. And that's a lot to get through in a short amount of time, but I'm going to try. These sort of build off of each other, right? And if anyone has questions, actually, please do throw them in the chat because happy to address them, um, but I, I will sort of go a little bit light on why these are important. Um, so recovery-oriented care. Uh, recovery-oriented care is, gosh, I've done training on it a good bit now, and recovery is a tough thing to define. Uh, we've got a couple definitions here, and I think, you know, 
depending on whether you think about it from a substance use perspective or a, a radical mental health perspective or whatever your lens may be, it's going to take on a different, a different meaning. Um, here are a couple definitions. So we've got recovery is a deeply personal, unique process of changing one's attitudes, values, feelings, goals, skills, and roles. It is a way of living a satisfying, hopeful, and contributing life, even with limitations caused by illness. Recovery involves development of a new meaning and purpose in one's life as one grows beyond the catastrophic effects of mental illness. And then another definition, a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. Right, so recovery, it, it's, not, it's not just some like linear process for, in, it's going to look different for everyone. It's not standardized. It's not necessarily an end goal. It is most likely a process that will have uh, ups and downs and uh, backwards and forwards. And it's really self-defined. Um, so the recovery approach is about emphasizing that people have the, they have the right and, and the, we should encourage them to uh, self-determine what recovery means for them and look in, look in that direction with them. So, with a recovery approach, the goal is to assist persons living with mental illness to lead self-identified enriched lives. And the belief is that it's not just about kind of like deficit and impairment. It's actually about everything. It's looking at the whole person. So it's believing that people with mental illness want and deserve more than symptom relief, stabilization, medication, supervision, and treatment. And now what does this have to do with housing and homelessness? It has to do with it because housing for for the population that we're talking about, uh, mental health supportive housing, the housing is in some ways it is a it's a component of their recovery, or it is for some it is the biggest piece. This is why the housing first model exists because there's the idea or um, uh, the um, correct assumption that people just need to be housed before they can really work on treatment and if not they can still go through mental health treatment but it makes it a hell of a lot harder right the chaos the potential risk for trauma make it much more much more challenging um, with a recovery approach we're acknowledging that people can choose what they want in their life and we'll get into this in a, a few minutes um, how to work with people who don't want to be housed um, or who are declining housing options or who do want to leave their housing or, you know, for whatever reason, lose it um, despite your best efforts. Uh, a recovery approach reminds us that we have to stand by the person that we're working with and acknowledge and follow their lead, follow their choices, follow their priorities. We can discuss pros and cons and options. Um, you know, that is what we should be doing. That is our responsibility to do. But uh, we most certainly have to follow people's paths. And so a recovery-oriented approach very much includes, or some would call it synonymous with a person-centered approach. And so we're, we're just reinforcing that if you're working with folks who are looking for transitioning into and trying to retain or move out of housing, we have to work from a place that's autonomy supportive, empathic, compassionate, and really reinforces uh, an abilities, a person's ability to decide for themselves. With that, uh, a, a way to do that, and these, this is SAMHSA's 
supported decision-making tools. This is actually a handout you can get from their website, which is down in the bottom right. I find this to be a really simplistic but super helpful uh, tip sheet on how to do supported or shared decision-making. And now what is that? That just refers to uh, working with someone as a provider, working with a client or whomever, um, and finding a way to elicit from them their preferences, opinions, and making sure they're fully informed to form those preferences and opinions. And it's it's instead of advising or or telling someone that they should do a certain thing, which of course I imagine most of us are not doing, um, but there are instances where you know you can teeter into it a bit. This is these are some really good linguistic techniques to make sure you're framing sentences or questions in a way that really shares power, that really puts, you know, the person that you're working with, highlights them into the driver's seat, right? Uh, but can also produce decisions. Okay, so trauma-informed care. What is trauma-informed care? Why does it matter? So a couple definitions again. Uh, trauma-informed care is grounded in an understanding of and responsiveness to the impact of trauma. It emphasizes the physical, psychological, and emotional safety for both providers and survivors and that creates opportunities for survivors to, to rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. So the words that are bolded there are the important ones, right? We're not gonna talk about trauma here, we're just talking about trauma-informed care. So trauma-informed care is what providers can practice that says, I have a lens on that acknowledges that you have experienced trauma and I am educated in the ways that it may be impacting you. I am, I am taking everything with a grain of trauma salt, so to speak, and I'm gonna make sense of some of your decisions, behaviors, some of your diagnoses in a different way and in a more compassionate way that understands that trauma was really impactful to your life and will continue to be to some extent, perhaps to a large extent. Um, and what we have to provide when we're providing trauma-informed care is safety and a sense of control and empowerment. Second definition, definition here is from SAMHSA. They note that it also involves vigilance in anticipating and avoiding institutional processes and individual practices that are likely to re-traumatize individuals who already have histories of trauma. And it upholds the importance of consumer participation in the, in the development, delivery, and evaluation of services. And I absolutely love that sentence. And I think it, it's really applicable to the systems work, uh, systems engaged work that you are doing when you are working with people who are trying to access and sustain housing. Um, because there are plenty of institutional processes that, uh, that can re-traumatize individuals in, in that process. And um, we want to also find ways to um, lift up and advocate alongside individuals we're serving to uh, make it so they are, make it a more consumer participatory process in all ways. The trauma-informed lens on homelessness and housing. So what we need to sort of pay attention to here that, you know, this is trauma-informedness means that we are anticipating issues that may arise because we know the person very well. We know them, we've listened to them a lot with a uh, recovery-oriented and person-centered lens. We're not just treating them as someone with deficit and impairment and diagnoses that we are treating symptoms for. We are treating them as a whole person whose stories we've heard and we understand the role of trauma in their life or we hope to, or we look out for its role. So we have to take into account that reasons for being unhoused and preferences around housing have to take trauma into consideration. Many people would prefer to to live on the streets, for example, for trauma-related reasons, and we have to respect that. 
Um, so reasons why people were ne maybe never housed in the first place could be trauma related, of course, uh, why they don't choose to not be in housing and why they choose to leave housing and decisions they make within housing are, could possibly be trauma related. Um, we need to acknowledge the intersectionality uh, that exists and traumas endured by communities experiencing oppression. So looking outwards from just uh, the traumas that maybe one individual experiences and thinking about what communities they come from, what have those communities experienced, uh, if they're of non-dominant identities, what have they experienced, what is that going to look like um, if they leave those communities and are moved, you know, 60 miles away to the other side of the county. These are things we have to think about for sure. Uh, transitions of any form can impact risk and resiliency factors, of course, uh, potentially shifting the impact of trauma. And as I just mentioned, behaviors and diagnoses need to be viewed through a trauma-informed lens. Um, this is not a training on that, but I think we can think of instances where uh, someone maybe is acting aggressively and we are frustrated with their aggression and confused by it or attributing it or pathologizing it. Um, and perhaps it helps at times to find a, a more compassionate eye for that and think about perhaps this is uh, caused by someone's trauma. Just a short example there. Um, but let's move on to the next topic, which is harm reduction. Right, so why does harm reduction matter? Because it's all about substances, right? Um, and it, this slide would tell you that is the case because this is really mostly the definition of harm reduction from a substance use lens. Um, and substance use is an important topic within housing because people that have been unhoused or in different housing settings that were maybe unstable um, that move into housing, if they are substance users of illicit substances, that ends up being a challenge quite often. Um, so housing first, which will be the next topic we go through, really exists to, for and uh, sort of on its premises, let's house people, then treat them, and then also low barriers. So people do not need to stop using substances at any point to be housed. Um, and there are ways to work through that. There are ways to work with people and uh, ensure sort of safe, stable housing while allowing them the autonomy to do what works for them. Uh, but harm reduction, just uh, to quickly define, uh, it's a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use, or you could say other high risk or risky behavior. So strategies and ideas, and then it's also a, a sort of a movement and philosophy for social justice. And that's uh, in the substance use world built on a belief and a respect for the right of people who use drugs, but you can expand that out to so many different areas. You can apply harm reduction very, very broadly. Housing, of course, is what we're going to talk about today. Um, but you could apply it to any any sort of higher risk behavior or risk containing behavior, like decision to take medication or sex work or fill in the blank. Many, many options here. Um, but the focus is that you're reducing harms. So you're not trying to change someone's core behavior. You're not trying to get someone to quit drugs. You're not trying to advise someone that sex work is not what they should be doing. You're not trying to tell someone they shouldn't use substances in their housing or they should stay in their housing. You are looking to see what they really want, what they're willing to do to reduce their risk, and then problem solve around that. And that is harm reduction. It's a, it's a very empowerment and autonomy reinforcing approach that is very creative on problem solving. And why harm reduction? Uh, because it supports autonomy and self-efficacy. How many times will I say autonomy in the next hour? Many, many. Um, these are necessary for sustained behavior change. This is the, the sort of like the way 
the way through is around, you know, you can't target what someone really, really wants to do. Uh, behavior change, small, small bits of change come from someone uncovering and realizing that they can, you know, that there are benefits that might outweigh the consequences and they have choices around that. Uh, harm reduction is non-judgmental and encourages engagement and honesty about behaviors. You'll know what's going on because you're taking this approach. Um, it's trauma-informed, as we just talked about, acknowledges reasons why one might engage in a risky behavior. It focuses on increased options. Again, there's creativity and there's uh, social justice advocacy in, uh, in harm reduction. It is, it's critical, and this is the work that you do in trying to advocate for and be creative problem solvers around housing issues, trying to keep people in housing when landlords want to kick them out. That's increasing options. Uh, and the keeps people alive part really applies to substances only. Okay, the dignity of risk. If you've been to any of my trainings before, you've probably heard me talk about this. We're not going to go into it deeply. This is just acknowledging that people need to have the dignity of risk. Um, the dignity of risk refers to the fact that if people do not make their own mistakes, they will not learn from them and they deserve to have that opportunity. So if I get into a relationship and my friends tell me, this is not a good idea, this person seems bad, I'm like, I'm gonna do it anyway. And then a year later, I'm like, oh, that was such a bad idea, but I learned so much, right? So we can't teach everything to people. Sometimes people have to live those experiences. We have to allow that. And this continuum, this neglect and overprotect thing, that is referring to where we sit as providers. We should ideally sit kind of in the middle there, but we tend to go towards overprotect or neglect uh, when people are doing risky things like not staying in their housing or not moving into housing when they could. Um, we, and we cope with that uh, sort of fear, fear of people's wellness or lack thereof uh, by overprotecting them or by shutting off and being like, it's their, it's their issue, you know, whatever. They're just going to choose to do that. And I'm just, I'm hands off now. I tried. Um, what we want to do is use skills like motivational interviewing um, and other, uh, the skills we've already just talked about to sit in the middle and talk with people in a non-agenda way and weigh things out and help them decide for themselves what's best for them. And that's gonna cause us less strife in the end too. So as I just mentioned, MI is a critical skill in this context. I'm not gonna go into it whatsoever actually. So just on this theme of what do you do? Like how do you cope with working with people when you work so hard to get them into housing and then they're like, nope, not staying, nope. Oh gosh, you just kind of have to, process that and set it aside. We have to check and shelve our own agendas, no matter what. We have to remember the dignity of risk. We have to anticipate those, those instances. We have to expect ups and downs and growth and relapse and hope and despair and starts and stops. Um, and we need to offer acceptance and compassion. Um, we have to find those stores within us and we have to keep them refueled. So we need to have a self-reflective practice and supervision and team support that, and sorry, reflective supervision also and team support that will allow us to stay in that space to be able to offer this and have that consultation with us to keep us sort of on this path. And when it's a lot, when it's really painful, and I know every single one of you, if you're a provider on here, you've experienced this where you're like, I, I, what am I doing? Am I enabling? Am I being neglectful? Should I intervene more? What, what can I do? I just can't sit by and watch this person be suffer or be in distress or be at risk and there are many instances where we cannot 
we, we have to respect someone's autonomy and we have to practice radical acceptance for ourselves uh, to cope with that uncertainty and that difficulty for the things that we cannot change. These three approaches really sort of meld into Housing First, right? And Housing First is a housing model. Um, it, it exists out here some. Uh, there are some Housing First housing programs. It's uh, predicated on these principles of housing. <laughs> Um, so immediate access to housing, choice, consumer choice and self-determination, recovery orientation, support, including individualized and person-driven and community and social integration. The values are that it, housing is the right to which all are entitled. So the right to housing, the right to shelter is not something that exists in LA in the same way that it does in my former city of New York. That took a lot of work to get done and we're hoping it'll happen here too. Uh, but this is what Housing First is based off of. Um, homelessness is first and foremost a housing problem and should be treated as such. Uh, people who are homeless or on the verge of homelessness should be stabilized in permanent housing as quickly as possible and connected to resources to sustain it. So a different priority than what some other sort of approaches uh, base themselves off of. And then issues that may have contributed to a household, household's homelessness can best be addressed once they are housed. So what does this all mean and why is it different? It's just, it's just the primacy of housing, right? And then once someone's in housing, how to keep them there, how to keep those barriers low, how to not threaten to keep, kick them out if they're choosing to use substances on site. And some agencies that are doing this work that are managing housing first programs, it's hard, hard work. And if you are working with people on the side, that are in housing first based housing, learn from them, learn how they're doing that, get get on board with what they what their rule book is, what you know, what are their expectations for tenants to stay in housing. They might be they might be unique. Um, they might be different from what you'd expect. Uh, and they might, I don't know, might be enjoyable to work with, but it can also be very challenging um, because the uh, rules are very gray in housing first housing and it it can be quite tricky. So if you're, if you're, let's think of instances where the program doesn't want people who are using substances at all, it's sober housing, um, requires sobriety, or, or that just might impose more restrictions. Or maybe it's just a non-housing first program, but it's not terribly restrictive. But there are other restrictive contexts someone might be experiencing, like domestic violence, or perhaps they're conserved, perhaps there's someone who gets 5150'd a good bit. Um, it's really important, and this would be important in any housing program or any transition into housing or while in housing. It's so important once people are in more structured or restricted environments to affirm where they have choice, to really like therapeutically highlight where they get to make decisions, where they get to have preferences. So this is a, a technique you can use kind of across the board. Um, it's it is just like eliciting choice and preference, similar to the supported decision-making techniques I mentioned earlier, and then affirming that um, and reminding someone where they do have choice. Because it is, I mean, imagining, you know, living in a more free environment, such as street homelessness, to the extent that that isn't restricted, which I know it comes with many, many uh, consequences for certain uh, just consequences in general and restrictions, but it might feel really different to be within walls. Uh, that might feel completely different to have a lease or to be have a program contract or something like that. That can feel very different um, to have, uh, you know, to be evicted and have that have to be something that's on a record. So these are things to just 
imagine that that context is very could feel very different for different people and it's important to talk with them about what that what that's like for them all right and then collaborating with housing so as i mentioned if you're working with housing first programs Hopefully they've got it together and you, you have a little bit more seamless work. If you're not working with Housing First programs, hopefully you can work in a way that is, um, you're able to use the same skills you would with someone that you're, uh, a client that you're serving. Um, working with them to sort of build rapport and uh, be respectful and frame goals as supportive and collaborative. This is especially important when you're working with uh, property managers or landlords who are not clinically trained at all, who might not have any mental health or health knowledge. Um, you really need to give sort of credence to their experience and knowledge base and what their priorities are. And it's, there's a lot of validation uh, or a little validation will go a long way. Uh, as I mentioned, using MI, asking for permission to offer information or an alternate, alternate perspective. You don't want to get into a power struggle with property managers, landlords, uh, sort of more restrictive housing settings. And this, I think you all know this, it, it's the same for collaborating with any, any sort of um, provider that's maybe not of the exact same mindset as you. Um, and then speaking pr pragmatically and using mutual goal-oriented language and person and consumer-centered language. We can only help uh, fight off the impacts of stigma and labeling and um, support the empowerment of the people we serve by modeling this language to everyone we have conversations with, right? Uh, so that, that again is that reinforcing of this sort of um, empowered, recovery-oriented nature of their care. Awesome. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I think for the next section of our training, we'll be talking about some of the needs or the factors associated with premature exits. Um, and we'll also talk about um, some approaches that will hopefully allow you guys to begin thinking about, okay, well, how, I, how might I design an intervention around this, right? And so we'll go through, I think we're very passionate about a lot of these topics, and, and these really could go so much deeper, but right now we're kind of going for breath. And so definitely type questions, comments into the chat, but also if you ever want us in the future to do a, a training on one particular topic, um, please indicate that in the survey as well, okay? So we're, we're, we're not gonna do any of these justice because we love all these topics so much, um, but if there's a, a deep dive that you want, please do indicate that for us. Just a caveat in the beginning because um, we'll, we'll try and make sure we cover all of these. Um, so first we'll, we'll talk about factors associated with um, premature exits. Um, so these are some of the reasons that, you know, there was a study that was done in 2016 and 2017 that, that called them stayers and exiters. Um, so exiters were pretty much folks who left under that one year mark and maybe not on great terms, right? Um, it's not like a, you know, right, it's, okay. So under one year. And so here, here are some of the factors that they talked about. Um, so compared to stayers, so those who made it over one year, exiters were twice as likely to be on probation or parole at enrollment, right? They're, they're more likely to have substance use issues. Um, higher utilizers of the emergency department, I think it was 75% um, of those who had exited had gone to the emergency department once or more, whereas those who stayed maybe 45%, right? Because we all know that our guys have to go. The, the preventative care is not easy, or maybe they have a lot of different chronic conditions and acute things that happen, so they have to go. But they're definitely the higher utilizers of the emergency department. And then another piece was that they had poor outpatient adherence. So that, that might be with the primary care 
care doctor, with any of the outpatient uh, specialty follow-ups that, that, that they needed to take care of, as well as mental health outpatient, okay? Um, and of those who um, were termed exiters, uh, more than 50% of these were discharged to street or incarceration. So it wasn't family reunification, it wasn't an, an, an alternate living situation or, or even shelter, it was to the street or incarceration. So, you know, from, from our perspective, you know, that this, those are not the ideal discharge locations for individuals, right? Especially since we've worked so closely with them. Our goal is for them to stay housed, but um, a lot of these are going to street or, or to um, the criminal justice system. And so these, the, these were things that were observed, right? Of, of those who had exited under that one year, you know, let's go through the hospital records, let's go through their utilization records, what do we see? Um, so this is some of the, 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 the factors that were correlated with premature exits. Um, now, the next set of information is kind of from their perspective, right? Um, there were some research studies that we looked at that, that, that did, did an interview. Tell us about this transition. What is this experience? And they pulled out some themes. Um, and so I, I think this was also exciting for us to look at because, again, we're talking about being trauma-informed, person-centered. Um, we don't want to just make assumptions about what their needs are based on their medical records, right? Um, so what we do see, though, there are similar themes. There's definitely this concept of, I need a lot of needs met, right? Um, there's a, a, a quite a bit of conversation around boredom, which is maybe not the first thing that you think of clinically, like, oh, maybe he's bored. Let, let, let's, let's talk about that, right? So um, boredom was a theme that came up. Um, of course, life skills, um, independent life skills, functional life skills came up uh, along with social skills. So these were, were common themes that we saw. Um, and then we also, we will talk about hoarding. Um, and I put a star around that because, you know, no client of ours is like, I want to talk about my hoarding issue, right? Because for them, it might not be an issue. Um, but we, we did want to put that there just because it is a common um, topic that we need to broach sometimes with our clients and how, how might we go about that, right? Um, and then before we kind of dive into each of these sections a little bit more, um, one thing that we found, again, some of the research that we went into was, was from the voice of our clients, um, just because, right, we, I, I, like Elizabeth said, I have never personally experienced homelessness, but one thing that I found that was interesting was this quote here, um, where essentially what our client says, nobody's ever guaranteed to stay unhomeless, right? And he acknowledges, I fear it might be three to four months from now if something should happen. Um, and I'm kind of fast forwarding and he says, not that I'm looking forward to it, but it'll be a lot easier than being a first timer. And so I think there's this kind of interesting idea where I, I know that when I first started working with this population, I was not okay with this. I was like, once you're housed, you're going to stay there, right? But, but there's kind of this acceptance even with our clients that this is a possibility, this cycle. Um, and again, not that they want to go back to it necessarily, but that there's kind of this preparation of. So I think as, as, as providers, as, as um, clinicians, that's something to keep in mind um, as we support them through this transition that in the back of their mind, they know that this is not a guarantee and, and there's so much to work through. Meeting needs. Um, and then again, uh, tell me to get off my soapbox via chat if you need. Um, but as kind of an OT, I, I love this part because it's talking about meeting not only the mental health need, um, but also the physical need, right? And especially now that we are prioritizing um, kind of housing resources in a particular way. So, I mean, the first thing to say, right, is of course homelessness and serious mental illness is associated with more chronic health problems um, as well as um, mortality risk, right? So for the general population, um, our life expectancy is maybe around 80 years old. 
for this population, it's between 40, 42 to 52. That is a, a tremendous gap, right? And, and kind of like what Elizabeth was saying earlier, there, there are risks and consequences of staying on the street and, 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 and definitely an impact to your health, uh, mental, physical, and your mortality is one. Um, the second piece about meeting needs that, again, it's more important than ever, is that we are having an aging cohort in our homeless population in LA County, but also nationwide. So LA County, they saw, I think it was a 21% increase in individuals who are 62 and above experiencing homelessness, right? So we already know that individuals who have this experience um, present a little older physically, but then of course they're also actually physically aging. Um, another resource was saying that in the 1990s, 90% of the population was over 50 years old. Now 50% is over 50. So there's just naturally needs that arise as you age, okay? And then the last one is, we know that housing is such a scarce resource. How do we prioritize this, this vacancy rate when, when our homelessness problem is so large? Now people, right, I, I think a lot of us are familiar with the VI SPLAD and different, different rating tools to get people's scores to see who gets triaged into housing first because with a limited resource, we're trying to help those who need it the most perhaps. Now the, 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 the main thing to consider there is now more than ever than the folks that are coming into permanent supportive housing then have more needs. Right, so I think in, in, in my experience, when I had first started, when you had a VI SVDAT score of an eight, you could be considered for permanent supportive housing. Now, most recently when I left, the matches are saying it's, it's so tight out there, unless your client has a 15 and above or whatever it was, it's gonna be a long time, right? So one frustration about how long it will take to get housed aside, uh, an eight and a 15 score, quote unquote, in vulnerability means they have a lot more supports that they might need, right? And that's physical, mental, cognitive, substance use, the, the whole picture. As Elizabeth mentioned earlier, when you move from survival to adaptation, perhaps, then you have less pressure of survival. You're not thinking about what am I gonna eat tonight? Am I gonna be safe tonight? Um, fill in the blank, right? There's a lot of now concerns when you're in survival mode. So when you're adapting, then you suddenly have this new capacity or new space to think about safety um, and there's other issues that begin to, to surface right and so I have a quadrant here it's not really moving in any direction other than to try and keep us organized or myself organized so the, the first one around mental health and I, I know that I'm talking to DMH here so right we, we got this but something that comes up, come up comes up in the literature is right example doesn't matter if it's um, trauma or if it's a mental health diagnosis What's commonly reported is a lot of anxiety, a lot of vigilance to the point where it constrains your daily functioning. Um, clients are unable to go to the laundry room to do their laundry because they are just so anxious about being alone or being in that context or fill in the blank, right? Um, and sometimes that causes extreme isolation, which later we'll talk about social skills and implications there. Again, this is a, a worldwide tour. Um, under physical health conditions, and I'm going clockwise here, right? This is a, a common list of medical acronyms that you may or may not see on your client's charts. But, you know, a lot of these can be chronic. A lot of these can have acute flare-ups, be it high blood pressure, um, chronic um, heart failure, right? Asthma, arthritis, COPD, hep C, the, the whole shebang. You know, sometimes, right, when you're out surviving, you're, you're not thinking about how something might hurt, or how you're short of breath necessarily. Um, so some of these kind of may flare up or just, hey, I, I would like to learn how to manage it, 
right? And if it's not managed, right, what happens when they continue to go to the hospital where they aren't going to primary care, taking care of specialty care, um, and they're unable to pay their rent and they, they lose their housing because maybe they were hospitalized all the way out in Palmdale, but their home is in Hollywood and they were discharged with no way back, right? So there's a ton of reasons around just more, more than just wellness, why we might want to get ahead of the physical piece, um, right? Or fall risk. Um, someone might be in there if they, if they um, have different special needs around wheelchair or a cane or a walker. Um, is it accessible? Um, and fall risks can also happen as a result of cognitive or substance use or mental health, but I kind of lumped it all in there, right? So here's just more concerns. Um, around mortality. Um, again, I'm kind of speeding through, but around the discussion of kind of understanding that death may, may be near, right? Normally when you're surviving, you're kind of focused on the now moment, but when you have the time to think about your health, your limitations, um, you know, some of this fear of death, lost opportunities in the past, wanting to perhaps reconnect with family, all of this starts to swell up and it can get a little bit overwhelming um, and it can impair function. And the last piece here that I'll touch on briefly is around cognition and executive functioning. Um, now, this is a, a little bit of a favorite topic also, but I mean, this can be natural uh, consequence of just getting older, um, mental health conditions, or chronic substance use. Oops, why didn't it go? There you go. Um, now, there's a ton of elements around cognition and executive functioning if you want to break it down, but the biggest issues people report is with memory and then with processing speeds, right? So what that might mean is, hey, I'm having a really hard time problem solving in the community, right? Um, what, what do I do with that neighbor? What, how, how do I get through this conversation with my landlord? This is, this is too challenging, right? Um, memory, like are they, how, how, how do they, without our support, remember to pay the bill or remember to go to those outpatient appointments, uh, follow all the instructions associated with certain procedures. Um, and then last but not least, right, I, I put stove because one, I mean, this is something that I struggle with, right? This is not just a, a deficit for our clients, but I, I have a little post-it on my door that says, is the stove off with a skull and a burning house picture on a post-it, right? Because I need that cognitive support to make sure that I, I'm doing some of the things for safety, right? So cognition here is also important for safety for that individual, but also within the context of the building, because there are it's actually quite a few safety hazards that can happen if there are um, cognitive deficits. Um, so with that, this is just a quick snapshot, barely scratching the surface of some of these concerns uh, that may come up in terms of unmet needs um, that can um, cause issue. Um, so one slide is not going to be doing it much justice in terms of how do we meet these needs, right? Um, so these will be, again, just more general concepts that hopefully will be a jumping off point, um, maybe a, a different way for you to consider intervening. Um, and some of it you'll be like, yeah, I tried all of that and, and it's still hard and, and the work is, is hard. <laughs> okay. So the first is, again, talking to DMH here. So you guys, we, we rock at this, right? Um, how can we mitigate some of the disabilities associated with mental health symptoms or substance use? How can we support them through that? Another piece is how, how can we help with the care coordination piece? Um, 
just because somebody moves in doesn't mean automatically they know how to access primary care. Or maybe the primary care doctor, they're connected, but how, how, do, they, how do they go for that, that imaging appointment or that x-ray appointment or, or that procedure, right? So helping them navigate because our, our, our system of care is so complicated will really help with that adherence. Um, and again, that, that was one of the uh, factors associated with premature exit was poor adherence. Um, how, how are ways might that, that we could, uh, might we promote health literacy um, and help them improve their own conditions, help them self-manage their conditions so that they can be more engaged? Um, how can we maybe assess for cognitive deficits and offer supports for key safety activities? So um, be it post-its or, right, what are things that we can make more automatic for them so that it's a habit or a routine that they don't have to think about or remember? Um, are there things that we can do around that? Um, and then the last piece here um, is maybe a home safety checklist, right? And I know a lot of property managers have those. Hey, is the, fire, is the, is the walkway clear? Is so-and-so clear? But um, I have some resources and we'll upload these um, probably in a, a few days or early next week. Um, but there are some checklists that go beyond just, hey, is the walkway clear? Um, but it considers the safety of the resident as well. It's like, oh, is there enough clearance for this corner for this individual? Um, so it, it's kind of an interesting tool. Um, and again, if you can get an OT in there or a PT to look, that's also great too. But especially as our folks age, there might be home modifications that you want to consider and work with the client and the landlord on. Okay, are we bored? Are you guys bored? <laughs> I hope you guys are feeling okay. I know it's Zoom and it's Friday, um, but it's okay. So some of you may be bored. Some of you guys may be really engaged. I, we're all in a different place, right? But I think if you answered yes, you're bored, or we've all had experiences of boredom, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet like two, two candies that it's not the same way in which our our clients experience boredom, right? And, and here's a quote. Again, I, I, love, I was combing through these 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 studies from, from their perspective. Whoops. And they said this, I am bored with life. I no longer have desires. It's a situation in which you have nothing to do and nowhere to go. It makes you want a sudden death. Or if I could die by lethal injection so I could be done with this life, right? I mean, some of us may welcome boredom. Like, I, <laughs> this has been a, a tough week for me. I would welcome just, you know, a, an hour of just being able to unplug and stare and be bored. But for some of some of our clients, it's a, it's a totally different experience and it's quite distressing, right? And so some of some of our clients complain about, oh, I have too much time. I, I have so much time, I don't know how to fill it, right? And part of the reason they say they have so much time is I just, I don't have the money. I don't have the money to buy movie tickets. I, I don't have money to buy experiences or products to keep me in entertained perhaps and th there's impacts for them right I mean we 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 talked about the emotional distress of it already it's like to the point of death for some of these individuals but there's also victimization right so when you're so bored and and, and we'll get to this later about well what do they do when they're bored but you could be so bored that you get yourself in trouble police harassment victim of crime and there's research too around group violence that happens when <laughs> when a bunch of folks are bored together right um fatigue right of course when you're bored you just maybe doze off right like during the zoom training i can't see most of you so maybe that's happening i don't know okay but 
when, when, when does boredom emerge the most for our clients, right? So it, it kind of, in the literature, it talks about it in two settings. So, so one is when there's a lot of imposed routines, and then the other piece is during housing transitions. So one is when you transition from being a housed individual to an individual who is currently without a home. That transition can come with quite a bit of boredom. Um, I feel like that's one we're less concerned with just because of the topic that we're on. But you do lose a lot of habits and routines and time spent associated with keeping a house or a home or a place of living um, that has some impact. But I will move on in the interest of time um, to this one because I think this one we are a little bit more focused on. So boredom also comes in when they go from um, homeless experiencing homelessness to being housed, right? And, and there are a couple reasons for that. Part of it is a lot of times when you're experiencing homelessness, you have a lot of external things structuring your life. Like when you eat, when you sleep, is all dependent on social services around you. What time do doors open, um, right? Or when am I going to see my dog? Like everything is externally structured, where, where you eat, when you sleep. And then suddenly when you are moved into your own place, you have a total absence of that. So all the things that used to force you to survive to have the structure to occupy your time is gone, right? Another part is it's so quiet, right? As much as there's a lot of trauma and a lot of intensity in living in, in, in shared congregate settings, be it a shelter or fill in the blank, it's going to be really quiet. Suddenly you have no one to talk to, no one to argue with, right? So that's another element of it. And then this is also more pronounced for those in scattered sites. So, right, there's project and congregate, and then there's scattered. And then the last one that I'll just briefly touch on is um, boredom also emerges in really rigid living environments. So, um, right, Elizabeth was saying autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. When we take autonomy away from people, that, that really limits their engagement in their own lives in, in, to a certain degree, especially in a living environment. So this might be, you know, um, sober living, substance use, some shelters, it depends on their philosophy. Um, but this can be a challenge for individuals to cope. And that's why sometimes may, people may leave for the day, they wander, um, or they just self-discharge, right? So... How are we? We're kind of short on time. I was going to do a poll for you all, just so you guys could guess what our folks do when they get bored. Um, but I will, I will reveal, <laughs> just in the interest of time. But what you'll see, though, is it's so interesting, is when we share these, you'll see that a lot of what people do when they're bored puts them at risk for losing housing. Uh, it puts them in a position where you, you kind of have to have a tough conversation sometimes with them. Sometimes, not always, right? Um, and okay i'll start with that and then the, the second piece is that you know i was talking with uh, elizabeth about this it's interesting is a lot of these top coping mechanisms can also be seen as um, increased symptoms in mental health perhaps or substance use right and so hopefully as you walk away with this this new maybe newish idea of boredom it just gives you a different perspective or a way to maybe explain or explore with your client what might be going on right okay so number one substance use, right? Okay, I need to use that to pass the time, deal with the boredom. Seek highly stimulating experiences. Um, the, the examples here were um, getting into fights, or maybe it was sex work, because um, sex work has the, the, the double of the momentary release as well as sometimes financial gain, right? So that, that, that's some of the things that get lumped into this category. Um, sleep and leisure, right? So endless watching of television, 
sleeping for 14 hours straight. Those were all listed. Again, right, that also sounds like, right, num number one sounds like substance use, sure. Number two can sound like mania, right? Number three can sound like depression, right? So endless walking, sometimes it's to a certain location, like I want to walk from South Bay to Union Station, or sometimes it's just kind of endless wandering to pass time, right? Um, and then social connections, um, and right, we know social connections, some are, 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 are strengthening towards maintaining housing and others are not so much. And I like this one. This one Elizabeth blessed me with. Look, I'm not tired. I'm just bored, right? So again, just thinking about what's presenting and what it might be. In terms of approaching boredom, you guys will be able to look at this in more detail because it will be posted on the website. But, you know, this is where the OT lens comes in real heavy too, where it's, you know, really explore meaningful activities to the client. Um, take a look at how they're using their time, help them structure in a way that um, is enjoyable for them and, and build new routines because again, it's sometimes this total absence of routine, right? And you can look at it in productive roles, spiritual participation um, and, and things like that. So with that, and if you can, yeah, hit all of these spots with it, right? Alleviate some poverty, get them connected to people, help them de develop a new sense of self, then that is a win. Okay, social skills and support. So, wow, this slide tells us not a whole lot, actually. Um, looking into the literature on social skills training, social integration, social supports, what we know about what people need once they're transition, transitioning into housing and trying to maintain housing, it's really just not, there's not really consensus. Um, there's no one size fits all. Um, you know, we'll see what, 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 the, what research brings, but Here's the gist of it. If you're working with someone, you will be best off trying to understand their social relationships, their social skills, what their preferences are, um, how they set boundaries, uh, how they how they receive support. Do they do they rely? Do they like to get support from informal supports, which are family and friends, or formal ones like providers? And for what purposes? Emotional or instrumental? Sort of the you know functional pragmatic stuff. Um, you know, those, those supports are necessary. People need them. That is what we do know. Uh, and past that, it's really, it is about trying to understand how you can really work with someone and meet them exactly as they are and, and get creative around um, uh, furthering their social skills and social integration. And Stephanie had pointed out to me when we were talking about this and just, I was a little like, wow, I can't believe there's really not, there's not like a, an intervention here. Uh, Social skills and integration may be a byproduct of uh, a goal of engagement or meaningful activity. So what Stephanie's talking about of uh, getting into meaningful activities, that, that might increase uh, social skills and integration. So there's a secondary um, sort of benefit to that meaningful activity ar around social. Some challenges that come up and this is these, you know, I, this isn't very strengths focused or positive, sorry. Um, but these are things to sort of look out for or anticipate if you haven't had worked really closely with people in supportive housing or worked within it yourself. Um, of course, I think you all, all know this, obtaining housing often means relocating really far from a community of origin, and that includes resources and, and providers. People often have to like get a whole new set of everything um, in terms of who the, their humans and their their sort of brick and mortar locations are for treatment or hobbies or, or enjoyment or family. Um, 
that's something that, again, based off of the individual, they may or may not be cool with. And so a strategy there is having that transparent conversation before someone's going into housing, if if you're helping them obtain housing, and then problem solving around it once they're in it. Um, Interpersonal challenges are really common in supportive housing. If there are roommates, some people love that. Some people do not do well with that. Oh, I've got a cat meowing. Um, It's really, it's just, again, not one size fits all. And you can work with people around conflict resolution skills, try and teach those. That's that's effective um, or potentially effective. But it's it's really, you know, you just have to take everyone as they are and uh, adapt your approach. Navigating interpersonal boundaries and abiding by house rules. So I bring this up because... Uh, rules are something we've already sort of touched on the challenge of, but rules also involve interpersonal interaction and who you, who someone can bring into the home and why they are there. Uh, many housing programs do not allow, let's say, children or older family members to come live in the space with them. That's not what they're designed for. Um, domestic violence relationships that existed prior will sometimes follow someone, often, um, I would say, uh, into their obtaining housing. So working around that, thinking about safety planning around that, again, boundary negotiation, navigation, uh, teaching uh, healthier and safer boundaries is definitely a focus there. Um, And illicit trade operations. Now, I don't know how much this happens in LA. New York, this is extremely common because maybe space is extremely scarce there. Uh, But it's if someone was maybe involved with drug dealers before, uh, there's a good chance they might be again. And an apartment is a great place to run a drug trade out of, to run sex work out of, and not to say there's anything, I'm not here to judge any of that, but just to say that it's often against the rules and it can help put someone's housing at risk. So how people navigate their boundaries and their interpersonal relationships is really critical. Um, and this is stuff to just talk openly about if, you, if you're starting to hear word that some of these issues are arising. And again, referring back to harm reduction approaches with this stuff and MI for um, t- having these conversations. Okay, Steph. Awesome, okay. And you know, social skills, that, that ties into independent life skills too and functional skills, right? Because those are very important to be able to to, to navigate the community and, and begin this transition. Um, so this next section, we'll talk about independent life skills, right? And here I put use it or lose it. And it's very true because I feel like during this COVID time, I haven't been using my social skills as often, right? So I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm losing my little social edge here, right? So so we all, we all feel it. They say riding a bike, you never forget, but there are things that I think you, you could, right? Uh, ironing a, a, a very challenging shirt is, is something that is maybe harder <laughs> to do if you haven't done it in a while. So I, I start with this because a lot of times in the literature you'll read homelessness can lead to functional skill loss. And, and I don't love the way um, we, we talk about that, right? Um, instead, I prefer to think about it as our clients are so dynamic that they have adapted the skills that they use based on the new set of demands that they found themselves in. When you go from, you know, living in the street or having a street life, right, that that has different, very, very different kinds of skills that are needed versus what we might call quote unquote house skills, right? So in the street, again, this is what folks in, in the literature it's reported and, and that I've seen, right? They're spending a lot, a lot, a lot of time on that first piece survival. 
Um, and they know they, they, they have it down. They know exactly when to go and where and what buses to get them there and what friends and what individuals will assist them, right? Um, enjoyment, self-management, and passing time. But, right, so let's just take one of the house skills just in the interest of time just to demonstrate a little. The house skill of feeding yourself, of meal preparation, of getting that done is very different once you're housed versus when you're on the street. Um, right, it's not about going necessarily to the shelter, so that is still a resource, but it's going to be about budgeting. It's going to be about making it to the grocery store, buying it, preparing it, knowing how to use a refrigerator, what needs to go into the refrigerator. Right? Once you start thinking about the details, there's a ton. Home maintenance, right? Um, keeping your area clean versus keeping a, uh, your, your apartment up to par with property management is very different. And, and then financial management, we'll get into that a little bit more, but suddenly you have very different obligations when 40% of your income is now dedicated to housing, right? Okay, so what the literature shows is that um, functional skills might be something that you can kind of help individuals who've experienced chronic homelessness with mental illness and substance use develop perhaps to kind of improve residential stability. And I say that with some asterisks because these are small studies um, and, and it's just starting. But the, the, the boxes to the left just show these are the common topics that folks are talking about, right? And things that are intuitive to us may not be intuitive to our clients. So room care, self-care, money management, how to get around safely, how to be a good tenant and a, a good neighbor. What does that mean? Right. So so it's just a whole different set of skills that folks have to get oriented to. Um, the number one thing here is we're talking about client center priorities. Um, function is not about what I prefer or what is your standard necessarily, right? So, so um, otherwise I, I might say my partner does not have functional life skills because it's just not my preference, right? So similarly, when we work with folks transitioning out of homelessness into, into being housed, we're looking at what's important to them, what they're able to manage, what that standard is for them, and, and how that fits with property management, right? Okay. Um, Oftentimes these are delivered as a group and as individual intervention, which might be challenging for you guys, depending on how your team's structured. Um, so that might be something for discussion if we have time for that. Um, but the literature does show some improvements around quality of life, um, resolution of trauma symptoms and movement and housing goals. There is this one resource, which this will be available to you um, once the slides are posted, but um, some of these modules are manualized, which, I like because you don't have to prepare as, as, as much necessarily, be it you adopt the whole manual, you can kind of look through just for some ideas on how to work with your clients about this, around this area, but that's a good resource we like. Again, um, I know we had someone reach out saying, why are you going so fast? It's because we have just about 10 minutes to kind of get through the rest of the content. So do let us know if questions and if you want us to spend more time in the future in any of these, but um, this is a, a, a one of my favorite sayings to kind of illustrate this, right? But how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. So as our clients are trading in one set of skills for something totally different, from street skills to house skills, right? Their habits, their routines, everything changes, right? And it's all these little pieces that form who they are and, and, and their sense of self, perhaps. So really their, their use of time, routine roles, and quality of life, right? And, and the whole trauma-informed care and also just understanding this process allows us to 
anticipate the need. We already talked about Borden and, and, and what that means. The loss of spending money is huge, and, and Elizabeth will talk about finances, but this idea that before, if you had 900 to to $1,000 of spending money, you, you could have been a caregiver. You could have supported your granddaughter or your child, and, and, and suddenly when 40% of that is removed, um, that changes your sense of self and what you can or cannot do with money, right? And so sometimes, too, the, the desire to increase financial freedom is quite strong. And so with that, I turn it over to you. Right. So uh, financial management, we're just touching on this one as an example. Um, as Stephanie was just saying, 40%, so a third of income is going to go to rent and then the rest bills. And I'm sure you can imagine all the things that cost money on top of that. It leaves very little spending money left. This is a reason people, at least in my experience, very anecdotally, very frequently chose to leave housing um, because it was cheaper to live on the streets and have that money back, be able to spend, me, spend money on whatever was desirable. Um, and another sort of uh, challenge that can occur, and this is not to say it's going to happen to everyone, um, but sort of gambling is a hobby. Um, folks that might use substances or might want to beat boredom, might engage in gambling, um, it costs money to gamble. You end up uh, losing money typically more so than winning it. Um, loan shark involvement. I'm not sure if anyone's had experience of uh, folks being, I don't know, sometimes I feel like the word, right word is victimized by loan sharks um, because it's, I often have observed this occurring where people, loan sharks know uh, when someone gets their funds for the month and they know who might be vulnerable enough via some um, sort of not great sense of judgment or cognitive impairment or maybe some mental health symptoms that they're able to involve them in that. Or perhaps it's because they're experiencing addiction and they are really motivated to have the money in the moment to pay for drugs and to support uh, chemical dependence. So it's really, you know, just things to look out for and we don't have any great solutions for them. They're, they're really, yeah, it's, it's a really tough thing. I've worked with in instances where I've had the opportunity to actually talk to the loan sharks and negotiate with them and pay them off on behalf of the client and then make an agreement with the client that they will not do that again, which wasn't always effective, but some strategies that you could try if you feel safe doing so. Um, barriers to obtaining employment and income that can sustain wants and needs, right? So it can feel really hard if someone's just gotten into housing and they've been homeless and maybe they, they haven't been employed, perhaps, uh, to feel like they're going to make that jump back to employment and employment that pays them enough to obtain independent housing, not supportive housing. That can feel really daunting and can take a while. Um, and I know a number of people that have just been like, nope, not going to bother, whatever. I give up. I don't even want to try. And that's an understandable feeling and something that I'm sure Stephanie would have wonderful advice on working with. Um, so strategies again, realistic budgeting conversations prior to obtaining housing, really talking with someone about like, are you going to be good with this? Like, what's it going to be like? What's your budget going to be? What do you want to spend money on? Um, thinking creatively around resource obtainment. So food banks are a great way to reduce uh, food costs. Um, working out entitlements issues, making sure people are getting as much as they need if they're on SSI or uh, whatever it is that they qualify for. Um, but down here, we've got uh, CBEST mentioned which is the countywide benefits entitlement services team which will be also in our resources they're a great option i'm trying to ward off my cat meowing with treats she's getting fed under the desk so hoarding um we have got a great training on hoarding from our fsp conference last year uh by daniel schlichter um 
We also have some resources in the, uh, the set of them that we're going to provide with this training on by the uh, LA County Hoarding Task Force, um, a lot of guidance on all the resources. And then a great book I would recommend is Buried in Treasures, Help for Compulsive Acquiring, Saving, and Hoarding. It's written in a very sort of sensitive, person-centered, um, non-pathologizing manner. Um, so those are some resources. But just talking about the challenges, I mean, they're they are, they're tough. It, like hoarding presents health and safety issues, um, hygiene issues, risk of fire, falls, infestation, property management difficulties, people failing inspections, um, property management just being frustrated and wanting to kick the person out of housing. I mean, it's it can be tough stuff and even more so clinically, it's really challenging to work with people around this because there can be so much confusion and internalized shame regarding hoarding. I think it, it carries a good bit of stigma. And this is a really important area to try on these lenses that we talked about before, the approaches, trauma-informed lens, asking where does the behavior come from? What, how might these items or how might this behavior be specifically meaningful to this person? Uh, Recovery-oriented, how do we support the autonomy of the individual who is hoarding? How do we respect their choices and priorities? And harm reduction, how can we work to reduce the harms related to the behavior? How can we work with motivation to make some changes, some positive change? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think if, if anyone if anyone has thoughts on, on this, feel free to throw them up or resources that they really like, um, feel free to share. I think, again, using these approaches, considering positive, positive and negative um, impacts and meanings of behavior, of course, is a critical one. Um, trying to depathologize and work in an anti-stigma way. I worked at an agency where we didn't call it hoarding, we called it collecting or, and talked about excessive clutter, which I found felt a little bit better. Um, and then of course, doing some safety planning and preparing for inspections. And that's it for that content. So we can just go through our sort of tips, tricks and resources here at the end. And of course, please, throw up questions or thoughts as you have them. And as Stephanie has said a couple of times, this is a fast run through. And this is the first one of these we've done from PMHP around housing ourselves. Uh, and we want to do more subtopics. So we can expand and iterate on any of this really and take it further and deeper uh, at a later date. All right, so an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, we need to anticipate obstacles and barriers. We need to be trauma informed and think through what might come up for someone. And we need to have, we need to create that uh, safety, that context where someone can talk to us about what's going on for them and we can really put heads together. Um, getting into housing and maintaining it is a complex venture. Uh, There's so many factors that arise to make that a successful venture. Managing expectations during the survival into adaptation stage, really critical. Um, prioritizing diversion and prevention if client enters the precarity stages and exploring social supports, community navigation and access to care. All right, and then these are just highlighting some of the areas where you wanna practice good care coordination and collaborative care. It takes a village. Uh, you've gotta be talking to everyone ideally, like just even just having a finger on the pulse of property management, even if there aren't any issues, saying like, hey, I'm working with this person, if your client is okay with you doing so. Um, talking to whatever other intensive case management or treatment services they have, getting them linked to primary care and then specialty care as needed, 
really important, as Stephanie was saying, that that adherence to getting medical issues addressed is a big reason for exiting. Um, talking to old outreach team members, so keeping that sort of that uh, collective uh, group of contacts and trusted individuals close at hand, and then yeah, the, the various teams that you already are working alongside in collaboration with. Then our resources. So these will be um, this. So the slides from this training, as well as a recording of this, a video recording of it, will be on the our, our website, which we'll include in just a second. Um, and then we'll have all of these uh, bulleted out resources there as well. Uh, the supportive housing interview guide. That's actually one from the agency I worked with in New York. Um, it's an interview guide we would use when interviewing people to move into housing to see if they were a good fit, but I think it's perfectly purposed if you're working with someone. It's a nice like structured or unstructured, I'm sorry, uh, sort of guide. So what are the things you should talk about with someone to figure out what's going to be a good match for them housing-wise? What's realistic? What are their expectations? What are their preferences? What are their values that will impact their uh, ability to uh, be successful in that housing? Um, so you can check that out. The hoarding resource guys I just mentioned is in there. And then, uh, Stephanie, do you want to touch on the others? Sure. I mean, I, I think the one that you didn't touch on as much that might be worth mentioning is just the safe at home checklist. Um, I think that one might be interesting, again, depending on who's on your team and what resources you have available. I know that OTs are not very common or are PTs on these teams, um, but that is a pretty user-friendly checklist to make sure you're considering how the person versus the environment of their home and what they need to get done, are they going to be safe? And again, it, you, you can just take a look, see how it might be the same or not the same as what you may already be using or what the property management has you use. Um, it just has some elements that I, I, I think would also really help the client maximize the use of space, especially if they have um, certain limitations. Eve, you ask, you've always got the good questions. Um, what about people who fell into homelessness because of illness or unemployment and they don't want to be around substance use? There are places that do not allow uh, substance use. Um, in terms of being homeless and trying to avoid substance use, I think that's a much more complicated answer. Um, but I do believe, you know, the majority of programs are still not terribly, like, active use um, levels of like radical housing first out here. So yeah, these are some of the sort of fit questions and sometimes there's not a clear cut answer um, that if someone, you know, these, these are the preparatory questions that sort of housing interview guide is kind of helpful for that. And it's just to give some examples and then you can think through all the other things you should really ask someone when thinking, is this the right fit of housing for you? Um, if someone really wants to be in a smoke-free building, then if that is like priority number one for them for any reason, that's something they have to take into consideration um, and what their, what their potential housing stock is gonna look like. Yeah, I, I think I 100% agree. Elizabeth, part of it is finding out what that housing preference is. Um, and then trying to negotiate that with what well, you may then also may take quite a bit longer for you to placement. And is that a trade-off that you're willing or able to tolerate? Yeah, there end up being a lot of compromises that on the, 
at first glance seem impossible for people and I completely understand it. Let's say you're someone with respiratory issues and you really don't want, can't live around a smoker, but the only option is that then you might weigh out like, what are my, what can I possibly do? You know, what is, what can I negotiate something to make sure I'm as far down the hall from smokers as possible? Can I, can, can you as a, can you try to do that yourself as a provider negotiate with the housing provider to see what, what options they have for trying to work out something? Um, you know, I think substance use is a, a di smoking is environmental substance use. Well, if you're smoking drugs and it's very environmental, but um, my advice to people who don't, who are living around people who are using substances, Helen, as you mentioned, it's really hard to find housing that doesn't have substance use going on. Um, and that is true. Uh, it's really kind of then about what can someone do to sort of focus on themselves and their own space and try to not be engaged with or um, sort of, it, it's kind of like coping skills, right? And boundary setting, um, finding ways to just kind of live outside of that despite living next to it. Um, and it's not ideal and it's really hard for people and it motivates people to leave housing and some it motivates them to work that much harder to get to a place where they have greater housing choice. Perhaps let's wrap it up. Um, thanks everyone who's still hanging around and uh, take care. We hope to see you soon.